0: Hello and welcome to Judgment Day, the film podcast that fits the films you're passionate about against Terminator 2. I'm your host, Michael Carroll. I'm very excited for this episode today. Our topic is the Earth Dies Streaming, a collection of writings on film by the esteemed critic A.S. Hamra, who is also my guest today. Hello. Hi, Michael. How are you? Good. Good to, good to be talking to you. Um, um, I read this uh, the summer of 2019 and um, it, was, it was great company that summer. Uh, That's great. Um, It was, um, uh, it cut through, I I think there's a very obvious thing to say um, for anyone who's read the book that your writing cuts through like a lot of industry manufactured notions of how we think about films, kind of like the the way films are marketed to us and trying to think about films uh, apart from that. And what, what does that even mean? So it's the end of February, 2021. Uh, I want to ask, how are you doing? How are you holding up?
1: You know, I'm I'm doing well. I'm tired of the pandemic. I haven't been yeah. vaccinated yet. And I'm tired of movie theaters being closed. But everything else is okay.
0: That's good. I, I'm going to tell you the truth. I, um, I think that I'm having, uh, I, and I hope this isn't uh, like, uh, I don't say this to make you uncomfortable or anything. I, I think I'm going through the, the most depressing period of my adult life right now. And I think it's something that I'm trying to like be mindful of and monitor, but it's also something that I think is just like natural and normal, given everything that's been happening the last, uh, the last year and then the last month. So, um, well, you
1: know, the last, uh, four years, the last, um, yeah. <laughs> 12 years, uh, I mean, it's not a happy time. and It has not been a happy period in American uh, history.
0: Yeah, and, and I think it's, I think it's healthy to, um, to be open about that and to talk about that. So, um, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to work that into uh, things. Are you, so, you, we are looking at New York City uh, movie theaters opening um, pretty soon. Are you, um, is that something that, ha- are you excited to go into movie theaters? Or is that something you're planning on doing?
1: Well, they're opening at 25% capacity, I believe. Yep. Which is, which is good, for now. I'm but I'm not going to go to any movies and movie theaters until I've been vaccinated. Yeah. So I don't I don't know when I'm going to get vaccinated. Uh, soon I hope. And yeah. as soon as I do, I as soon as I do, I'll go to movie theaters again. You know, regardless of at what capacity they're operating. Yeah,
0: I, mean, it seems I go to
1: strange. Sorry. Go yeah, I, I go to movies at strange times of day anyway. You know, so mm-hmm. sometimes I go to the movies and there's you know only a few people there you know and um but you know i don't want to get i don't want to risk getting covid uh, under any circumstances i i think that it's interesting that you know in the movie outbreak the virus that that film is about uh i'm talking about a movie from the 90s with dustin hoffman yeah. and renee russo Yeah, from uh, Das Boot. What was his name? Wolfgang Peterson. Peterson, right? Yeah. The the pandemic in that film starts in a movie theater.
0: Yeah, 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 and it's it's the guys like eating popcorn, just laughing his ass off, and then. Yes,
1: exactly. (laughs) So you know, I mean, I've been very you know mindful of that the entire pandemic.
0: Yeah.
1: And I certainly miss going to the movies, and I haven't been uh, this long out of a movie theater in my life. Yeah. You know, I've I haven't been to a movie since the end of last February. What was your the, last film? March. the last film I saw in a movie theater was The Conversation by Francis Ford Coppola. Ah, I, yeah. I saw it at a press screening at the film forum because I was, I was writing a piece on it for four columns, mm-hmm. which if you don't know what four columns is, I recommend it. It's online. It's the numeral four columns. And there's a lot of great film critics there. And Melissa Anderson is the film editor, and she also writes most of the film criticism. Um, which is fitting because of the way it ends with Gene Hackman totally isolated and by himself in his apartment, (laughs) you know, ripping up the floorboard.
0: Yeah, yeah, playing Uh, the saxophone.
1: Yes, I've been living like Gene uh, Hackman in the conversation at the end of the film since, you know,
0: March. About a year ago today, I think, my my wife and I had a miscommunication about uh, the day we were going to go see our, our accountant to do our taxes, and so she had taken the afternoon off of work and um, she called me, and she she was asking where I was. I said, "No, it's it's next week." And so uh, she was like, "You know, I'm going to go to the movies. I'm going to treat myself." And I she saw she she think she saw that Birds of Prey movie or something. And I thought, "That's nice. I should do that too." Anyway, good for her. It's, I can't remember the last one I had gone to see. So, um, well, gonna, you know,
1: yeah. right before the lockdown started, I was going to go see First Cow. It had come out right around then. Okay and I was talking to my then girlfriend on the phone and I told her I wanted to go see first cow that, that afternoon, it was a Friday. And she said, Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't go. Oh yeah. Not not a good idea. So, so I didn't go and I'm glad I didn't go, but that's when I wrote that, uh, that, that piece in the baffler where I said, you know, I'm just going to wait for second cow.
0: (laughs) Um, We're going to go into some heavy stuff. Um, in, uh, in, a, in a minute here, um, but I did want to like circle back on some other light and fluffier subjects. Um, you worked as a projectionist at the Brattle Street Theater I worked in at Cambridge, a, as a, Massachusetts?
1: <clears throat> I worked as a projectionist at the Brattle Theater
0: mm-hmm. in
1: Cambridge, Massachusetts for about seven years in the 1990s. And then I moved to New York. Beautiful so I was theater. Projected. Yes, it's great. It's a one screen uh, revival house in Harvard Square in Cambridge, Mm -hmm. Mass. And it has a rear screen projection system.
0: Yeah, I, um, so what era, what time were, uh, I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts for like my high school, Ah. middle school years. So, so I spent a lot of time loitering there. Um, So um, what, what, at what time period were you there at? I started in 1994. Okay. And I worked there until
1: two thousand one, but there was a period where I didn't work there for a couple of years because I just was writing.
0: Okay, so so here's, the, um, bear with me for a second here. So a few episodes ago, I mentioned that uh, I had a friend growing up who would uh, we would go see movies. He would take, he would want me to go with him to movies um, that were like made for kids, because he liked looking at the actress Sarah Michelle Geller. and uh, okay. and so I. Um, I sort of, we we had like a mutual thing where we were kind of like both open to like going to films that weren't necessarily like, you know, for us. So I took him to Nosferatu at the Brattle Street Theater. And um, I just told him it was a vampire film and that, I don't know, I've never seen it. I don't know what it's like, but you know, we're teenagers. What else are we going to do? And um, as the movie as the lights started dimming, we were right in the balcony in the center and uh, I it occurred to me, I hadn't said this to him before, I said, by the way, did you know that th- this is a silent film? You know that, right? He goes, Michael, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> are, are they still mad? <laughs> we, had a lot of, we had a lot of Bostonians turn around just like, oh, <laughs> well, you know,
1: there's always strange things that happen in movie theaters, as I'm sure you're aware, yeah. you know, that's that's not, by that, that that is by no means the strangest thing that ever happened in the audience at the Brattle Theater. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what year that was, but that that's not, that's nothing compared okay. to some people that go to movies uh,
0: a lot there. I, I, I felt, I still to this day feel self-conscious about that. Anyway, my yeah, own stuff worry. I'm working on. <laughs> um, so, so your book is uh called uh, The Earth Dice Streaming uh and it's uh based off of the uh, earth dies screaming uh which is um that was a early 60s british film with the uh, alien invaders
1: yes uh the earth dies screaming is a british film by terence fisher the great hammer horror film director it's a black and white kind of proto-zombie film it's not his best work but it has a you know it has a well-known title because there's been A couple of songs with the same title or similar titles. I literally
0: thought that this was named after a Tom Waits song. Yeah,
1: and there's, (laughs) and before, before the Tom Waits song, there's a UB40 song. Okay. That, that's quite good. I like both those songs, but I was thinking of the film when I named the book.
0: Why were you thinking of that film?
1: Well, I was trying to think of what to name the book, you know, and I wanted to Mm -hmm. have an interesting title, and, um, you know, I, Uh, that just came to me i I was i was texting with a guy i know who lives in puerto rico and uh while we were texting that title just occurred to me
0: Mm. okay um yeah it was i i i saw it recently actually i saw it i saw it streaming on this great little website called uh tubi which has this wild business model where you watch whatever you want, uh, and they interrupt every fifteen minutes uh, to like blast commercials in your eyes.
1: I've seen I've seen many many films <laughs> on Tubi since the pandemic started.
0: It's it, it's wild to like uh, just think of um, just uh, like I said just a model of like sort of sort of like being able to see stuff that way. Um,
1: well, that's called television, you know, yeah. that's how TV used to be, except you couldn't pick the film you wanted to see.
0: Yeah, yeah, except now it's streaming, so it's, you know, it's all the, it's all the, yeah. um, it's all the, like, fun of television in the 90s, um, with all the, like, um, uh, ecological, like, backlash of streaming, but um, anyway, yeah. so I, I watched it, uh, and I was, I was actually, I was very surprised it was a film about manners, in a way that I didn't expect
1: uh, well I mean that film was an influence on the Night of the Living Dead which I was just talking about on a, yeah. on a different podcast um, and Night of the Living Dead is kind of about that too um, when you put people in isolated groups and you know then they're closed in You know, that becomes the subject and of course it's a British film so it's very different than the American film that was made several years later a few years later
0: it's a good film um, I enjoyed it um,
1: it's 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 no night of the living dead though, let's let's face it. No, 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 no.
0: But but you know, it's it's uh it's just over an hour. So yeah, you know sure. um, um, so we're gonna talk about uh we have three films on doc. Uh we have um The Graves of Wrath, Operation Filmmaker, and uh Melancholia. Uh, just once there is. Um so the Grapes of Wrath, uh, it doesn't really need any sort of introduction, it's John Ford's adaptation of the Steinbeck novel, this is the 1940 version, um, and you write an entire piece about it in the book um, called Alien Land, uh, and um, you wrote it in 2008, 2009, I wasn't.
1: Yes, um, there's a date at the end of the piece in the book, I guess, I guess. You, <laughs> I, should, I guess... should
0: look up this stuff.
1: Yeah. I guess we should mention that the three films that we're talking about today, you picked because they're all films that I write about in the book.
0: That, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. no. So they're, they're all, they're all films that, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there, I, we were talking back and forth. I was interested in films that were about like um, quagmires and like, uh, like, a, you know, unwinnable situations, um, which is not, you know, it's not like a theme of your book, but it, there's like a strong vein of it, and that was one of the things that like popped out to me.
1: Um, right, well, the the Iraq War pieces, that's really, you know, the subtitle of that piece is the cinematic quagmire.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, wait, the subtitle of, oh, oh you're talking about Je- Jessica Biel's hand?
1: Yeah, that, that piece on the on all the Iraq War movies okay. specifically deals with the quagmire.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, they, I'll tell you, those are growing up though I, I tended to like be very turned off by films uh like that um you know and again i was growing i grew up in the 90s so you know it was just sort of stuff that was like unimaginable uh, i think that there's a lot of like films from like like the 70s especially like that i just kind of like glazed over in my mind as just being like gloomy and pessimistic and um it's certainly something that like as i've gotten older i i'm like you know, it's 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 an interesting thing. I think it's a really worthwhile thing for films to, like, um, to have to grapple with. Uh, it's a great use of film to, like, use that as a space to explore those feelings. I don't know. Is that is that how, how you feel about, like, looking at films like that?
1: Well, although in, in the introduction to the book, I write about films mm-hmm. that you might consider to be pessimistic. I mm-hmm. don't actually consider these films to be pessimistic. Okay. Uh, they're, they're depressing in some ways, and they're about difficult situations, but they don't seem pessimistic to me, and I I think it was Fassbinder that said, as long as there are depressing films, there is hope, Mm -hmm. something like that, Um, and I believe that, Uh, I believe that, and I think these three films, you know, are like that.
0: So maybe Um, this is, maybe this is, uh, maybe this is a little silly, but can you can can you like expound on that on that quote a little bit more as long as there's as
1: something... long as there are as long as there are depressing films there's hope hope yeah well you know most many films that are made just as entertainment products when you see them they're actually depressing mm-hmm. and they fill you with a sense of hopelessness especially when they're bad yeah <laughs> um and they 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 plunge you actually into a quagmire uh, since we're talking about no. quagmires they plunge you into one where it doesn't seem like anyone can really achieve anything because it makes it seem like the entertainment industrial complex is so you know impenetrable and and hopeless they just keep churning out these things that are not good and you know expecting you to like them and to accept that they're supposed to be good you know the films that we're looking at today talking about today aren't don't do that at all uh you know they deal with difficult situations and they do it in unique ways i mean the greats the greats of wrath is specifically you know it's a hollywood film was made by 20th century fox in 1940 Mm -hmm. yeah but it's uh, it's about you know it's about the dust ball and the depression and migrant work and it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending but it's it's still a progressive film it's it's invested in the uh dignity of human beings and in their survival
0: yeah it has uh uh, so i i had never seen this film before um and i you know i I kind of i had done a little preliminary like john ford stuff when i was younger um i I had not managed to get around to this one um i I was uh I, i don't think i had much of an interest in it until i had read your piece on it and it um yeah, I was, I was, uh, taken aback at, at how, uh, moving it was. It has, uh, I think an obvious take is that it has like a documentary feel at times or it goes for a documentary feel. It's, uh, Greg, uh, Toland, um, literally like right before shooting Citizen Kane behind That's the right. camera. Uh, and, um, you know, there's like, um, it's funny, uh, we're gonna get to the Terminator franchise in a little bit, but you know, I, uh, Recently I saw the last Terminator film, which the name still escapes me, but um, there's a, a big action sequence that takes place in an ice facility in that film. And uh, I've only thought about it after seeing the Grapes of Wrath uh, because I was just trying to think of like films that try to tackle something in any sort of similar way. And, you know, um, you know it just seems strange that like uh, something like an ice facility is something that's so in the consciousness of so many people, especially many like liberal people or leftist people. And um, it, it really does use those, um, use, that, use that world uh, as, you know, as cannon fodder, as like stock um, because uh, I, I presume we haven't seen, I think it was called Dark Fate or something. Terminator
1: Dark Fate, yes. Yeah, Dark Fate, no. yeah. I actually did not see it though. Yeah. Someone told me it was good.
0: It's fun. It's, it does interesting stuff, but, but, you know, like I said, it, 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 there it, you feel like, um, it's, uh, you feel like you're watching something with a lot of weight to it because they aren't like talking about this stuff, but there's no, um, you know, in the grapes of wrath there's a sequence with, um, like the, uh, this family question whether or not to feed these, uh, or children that are around them, you know. There, there's like weight to, there's texture to um, what this misery that these that these people have to endure is, um, and and you know, like I said, the, like the the bodies in uh, the la- in that Terminator film, I think that they just feel like they're like stock California stand-ins, you know, like pretty. Wait, well-fed. wait. So hold on.
1: Wait, I'm a little, I'm confused though. Did I lose you? I'm sorry. By what you're saying. Yeah. There's a there's a scene at an ice factory, Is in in, a term,
0: in, a, in the Terminator film, yeah, right. in a in detention
1: this, this scene, center. In this, oh, it's oh oh ice an ice detention center, an right? Ice detention okay, center. yeah. I'm
0: sorry. So, did I say yeah, ice, so, ice so, factory? So, I'm sorry.
1: I thought you said ice factory. I don't know if you did. Okay so there's a scene in an ice detention center so i can see yeah. how it's like the migrant camp scene in uh, grapes of wrath there are, there are three different scenes in migrant labor camps in the grapes of wrath yeah and, and the one you were the one you were just describing when the jode family gets there you know it's, it's shabby and dangerous and they decide to spend the night there but then a lot of children start coming around to their tent because they have food and the children don't and they yeah. have to decide whether to you know give these children some of their food and and then you know uh uh uh, you know cops come around to try to break up what's going on and the cops get into an argument with two of the characters in the grapes of wrath who Mm -hmm. antagonize the cops to the point of violence and then they have to run away from the cops and one of the cops ends up shooting a bystander in the shoulder yeah yeah and and then the cop says boy what a mess these 45s make yeah you know and uh you know it's terrible um in the novel the cop actually blows somebody's hand off with the gun john Ford. john ford didn't want to show that the the woman who was hit by the bullet just gets hit in the shoulder yeah um but that that's an amazing scene in that film yeah and you know you know it's it's shot by ford and toland in a very that's the most that might be the most documentary section of the film because the camp looks, with that the
0: tracking camp, shot into the yes. camp, but yeah,
1: there's a tracking shot into the camp that's from the point of view of the Jodes and their jalopy that mm-hmm. looks very, very real and looks like looks more like the news than like a Hollywood film.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of trying to ground you. out. I, I was surprised, knowing what I knew about the film going into it. Uh, the opening has a, a kind of stylish set um, when he when um, when Fonda comes home and, uh, you know, there's like these nice, like, rustic looking fences in the background and everything. And then, you know, um, it's funny because it it is, it goes from like, uh, it's almost like an inversed Wizard of Oz in, in a weird way where it's going for something. Uh, maybe, maybe you disagree. I, I, You've certainly lived with this film longer than I have. But it, what I saw was like going from something kind of stylish to like, then like, as the film gets more and more, you know, struggling with these, when their situation becomes more and more dire, it starts to like take on a more documentary. look. Right,
1: exactly. Well, the first, the first scene of the film is actually Henry Fonda, who's just not, uh, let out of prison, mm-hmm. hitchhiking on the road uh, in front of a diner, in front of a roadside diner. And uh, he's picked up by a truck driver who, you know, is, as they're talking, the, tr- the truck driver starts to realize that the Fonda character, Tom, is an ex-con. This mm-hmm. makes the truck driver nervous. But then Henry Fonda gets back to the house where he grew up on in the dust in, in Oklahoma, a sharecropper's house, and no one is there. And he meets two men that he used to know. Uh, one is a preacher played by John Carradine named Casey. And the other is the last man in their town um, named Muley, who's played by the great character actor, uh, John Qualen, who plays the condemned man in His Girl Friday. Oh, and, and he also plays the Norwegian um, resistance man in Casablanca, and um, you know the scenes with those three actors are very, very dark, very expressionistic, and very haunted. And uh, I sound like the woman in uh, the long goodbye that says haunted, but those are very, those are very haunted, kind of dark, yeah. crazy scenes with these three actors who are very, very intense. They're like the, they're very gaunt. Tall, thin guys, and and those those scenes have a real, a real kind of almost gothic quality, um, and they're desperate, you know, and you know it, this is a combination of choosing those three actors who are so good, and the way that you know Toland is lighting the scene, and the way that Ford is directing it, so it's very theatrical in a way. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of the film is not—that's true. Although there are some moments of great theatrical, you know, speech-making monologues in the film.
0: Yeah, as it has. Yeah, it ends on a very uh, yeah it ends on a bizarrely kind of uplifting note. Um, well, because because it has two endings in a sense.
1: It it has the ending where Henry Fonda goes off on his own, and he has his famous speech about, you know, wherever there's a fight, uh, so that hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. And you know he he has to leave because he 's committed manslaughter for the second time in the film
0: yeah kind of you know, this is
1: of this, yeah, this is a rare film in which the hero is guilty of manslaughter twice <laughs> <laughs> so he he has to leave the migrant camp that he 's living in because the police are looking for him, and then um his family decides to go somewhere else to pick cotton, i guess it is in this case uh they're they 're migrant pickers, they pick peaches and oranges and things and uh then there's the long speech that ma Joad, played by jane darwell has which kind of makes the film have a slightly more upbeat ending than the previous scene
0: yeah it's you it, it's it's funny you the big uh thing in alien land uh, i think that uh people say uh the the great observation you have is that it's um It's a science fiction film. Uh, You're envisioning it as like a science fiction film because you know, like I was saying, you wrote it ten years ago. It feels uh, it's it's scary to think, but it feels like it's becoming more and more relevant again. Uh, It's certainly been in the news, you know. But people living uh, a migrant lifestyle have certainly been in the news more. Um,
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I wrote that about twelve or thirteen years ago, actually, Um, and. You know, I said that it seems like it's a science fiction film because it seems like it's predicting the future. Yeah. That's what I said about it. It seems like it takes place in uh, uh, somewhere else, not, not necessarily in America. Mm-hmm. It seems like it takes place on another planet almost because of the dust ball at the beginning. And, um, you know, it, it, the film does seem very prescient now because it's about it's about the devastation of, of climate change and environmental disaster. And it's about people who, uh, you know, have to go from place to place to get work and who aren't paid very well and live um, very precarious lives with their families uh, in tow. And their families could be separated at any moment, you know? And, and you know, there's a speech in the film that Ma Joad has about that, you know, about how nothing is clear anymore because the members of her family keep kind of disappearing. So So that was very... You know that was something that's reflected in current reality, or you know, with with ICE detentions, and um, you know, and I mean, it's been even eight,
0: not even beyond ICE detentions. I mean, there's a lot of people who like the day to day. Yes, day-to-day. well, I mean, of course, is it uh, is it worth bringing Nomadland for just a moment? Well, I
1: wrote it. I just wrote a piece partially about Nomadland that appeared in Freeze magazine, where I compare it to Hillbilly Elegy and. A ron Howard documentary that also came out last mm-hmm. year called Rebuilding Paradise, which takes place in a town called Paradise in California that was completely destroyed by the camp fire
0: yeah um, and in nomad
1: landmad it's, it's,
0: it's an adaptation of uh, of a non fiction piece but it sort of uh, it centers it around a um, uh, I can't What's it's a state in the southwest that... Um, it's in
1: Arizona and New Arizona. Mexico and it's in Nebraska. It's, all, it's in yeah. South Dakota. Nomad but, Land is a, Nomadland is a very interesting film that deals with migrant labor. However, the difference between grapes, The Grapes of Wrath and Nomadland is that for the Jodes, their migrant labor is not a choice. They're forced, they're forced out of their homes and they go on the road from Oklahoma to California in order to survive. In Nomadland, the um, character of Fern that Frances McDormand plays, she too has to go from place to place um, out west looking for work. So she works in an Amazon warehouse, she works at Wall Drug, she works at a beet farm, but that film keeps presenting Fern's life as a lifestyle.
0: it's a it's a choice, yeah. I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of That's Five choice. Easy Pieces. Uh, I was thinking of Nicholson's Five Easy Pieces when I was watching it a little bit. You know, like yeah, you which seemed which seemed a little inappropriate considering you know the reality. Look, like, I don't know. I, I live a pretty comfortable life, but you know, from from you know.
1: Well, Fern's life is not anything like Jack Nicholson's in Five Easy Pieces. No, no, no. But but, but it is.
0: But they do. But the, both films kind of like take take the space to say like this is a, this is a, who. This is a choice that this person's
1: making. Right. Well, they're both dropouts of yeah. society in, in a way. Yeah. But Fern's choice is because her husband died and where she lived in the town of yeah. Empire, Nevada, the town is now Absolutely. a ghost town because there was a gypsum a gypsum mine there where um, you know, everyone it was a company town. Everyone who lived there worked for that mining company. And the mining company has gone out of business and closed the mine, and now the town is a ghost town. So that is very similar to the grapes of wrath. However, um, you know, No Midland keeps presenting this as kind of a, a an after retirement choice for baby boomers, even though she's not retired. She has she's a sixty two year old sixty two year old woman who has to do all sorts of terrible day labor, and um, there's something there's something fraudulent about that. You know, yeah,
0: uh, cold that, comfort that she can get these these. Wonderful landscapes, but um, yeah,
1: yeah. And you know, but compared to Hillbilly Elegy, it's you know, quite yeah, good, I, <laughs> it's worth seeing, it's certainly worth seeing, but it's not, yeah, it, it lacks the politics and the understanding of economics that the Grapes of Wrath has.
0: Yeah, which was a little, I, I was, I was a big fan, I am a big fan of the writer, and I was a fan of Nomad Land as well, so but I was yeah. a little uh, underwhelmed.
1: But it's kind um, of amazing, it's kind of amazing though, Michael, how a film from 80 years ago, yeah, is so much yeah. more, pro- so much more progressive than a film made today. Exactly. You know?
0: Yeah. It, or it penetrates the, the, like the, yeah, the, the feeling of what's going on.
1: Anyway. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the drama does not suffer from, from that in the Ford film. Uh, Nomadland, <clears throat> Nomadland is kind of an arty film, you know, it's very yeah. indie in a way. The Grapes of Wrath is a Hollywood film in which um, it doesn't really stop to admire the landscape and to, uh, let the audience seep in these sunsets and things. It doesn't do any of that. It's in black and white. Um, but the difference between the two films is stark, you know?
0: Yeah. I, uh, I'd i like to move over to Operation Filmmaker, um, if that works for you. Sure. Uh, so Operation Filmmaker, I'd never heard of before. It, uh, you write about it in a piece called Despicable's hand which is uh sort of you were looking at all the films that uh were covering up to that point in, in the like mid-aughts that covered the war in Afghanistan the war in Iraq the just general like um anything that was going on may like from the US that took place in the Middle East and uh uh ov- you know obviously you know very war films basically yeah. um but uh I read your, you start describing what happens in this documentary, and it sounded like you were having a heart attack uh, on, on paper. Um, it's a strange <laughs> story. Um, actually, do you think you could, you could just like, just for people who haven't heard of the film, do you could center the story a little bit?
1: Yes, um, so the piece that you're referring to called Jessica Beale's Hand, is a piece in which in the summer of 2008, I decided to watch every single film made about the war in Iraq up until that time and write about them all. So I watched about 40 films or so, and I wrote about each one of them. And one of them was a documentary called Operation Filmmaker by a documentary filmmaker named Nina Davenport, who had made a film called Hello Photo that I'd seen and liked very much, which was a film about India. In this film, she um, was basically hired by Uh, movie production company, which was the people making the screen adaptation of the novel Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer, uh, that was being directed by Liev Schreiber and starred Elijah Wood. Uh, She was hired to document how this production was giving a young man from Iraq a chance to work on a a Hollywood movie because they'd seen him on MTV talking about how he wanted to go to film school and life in Baghdad was very hard because they were being bombed and the war was on. He arranged for this kid that was named Muthana Momed to um, get a job in Czechoslovak- in the Czech Republic where they were filming the movie. And you know, he, the kid gets a plane ticket and he shows up in Prague and they take him to the location and he's to live there and work on the film. And um, you know, things don't really go that well for him. And her film documents this.
0: Yeah, she, it's uh, the the nature that that the film exists in the first place. Uh, it, it seems to grow out of. Uh, th- there's a lot that Davenport doesn't share uh, for probably very reasonable reasons, but it seems to be growing out of um, this sort of liberal, self-congratulatory, um, like uh, piece that that um, presumably, again, I'm presuming a lot here. That presumably was uh, that the people making Everything is Illuminated want to have. They wanted to make this project where yes. they're, they're making a, because Everything is Illuminated was about people crossing cultural barriers, and they wanted to, like, just l- take this kid out of, his, um, out of his home, which was, you know, a war zone, um, and um, sort of, uh, you could tell that they're going for, like, something feel-good here, and what they are getting is not feel-good. Um,
1: no, it's not feel good at all, and they were, you know, essentially, I think they were doing this as part of their electronic press kit for the film, mm-hmm. that they had hired Nina Davenport and, and another person who appears in the film to make, a guy named um, uh, uh, Kurosi, um, mm-hmm. I can't think of his full name now. His name his, is oh, Kurosi? No, no,
0: no,
1: yeah, his name is Kuros Ismaili, yeah. and you know he drops out of the project because he thinks it's too exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, So Muthana shows up on the set, and the producer of the film was a guy named Peter Seraph, or Seraph, puts him to work doing craft services, you know, mixing nuts with candy, getting coffee for the producers.
0: Making um, copies.
1: Making copies, uh, you know, working on the gag reel for the wrap party. Mm -hmm. You know, Muthana thinks he's going to go to this production and work on a movie. Instead, he's given the most servile things to do you know, things that the lowest PAs kind of do. Yeah. And uh, he's not enjoying this. And then the producer, Siraf, uh, you know, keeps showing up on camera to say that Muthana is not being servile enough. Yeah. He's not making himself liked enough, and he's failing because he's not kissing ass. Yeah. And it's a real indictment. This film is a real indictment of the entire system of making films at that level. And it's not, you know, although Nina Davenport is a very good filmmaker she becomes implicated in this process too. So it's not entirely clear how much she meant it to reflect the kind of insidious demand for servility on the part of the producer and director and other people working on the film that keeps appearing in Mutana's daily life uh, while he's working on the film. And it it has to be said also that Mutana is not the most likable person. Which is which is part of what makes the film good because he's very resistant to uh, doing these doing these things that he considers to be to have nothing to do with making a film and he's right he, he's yeah. right about that and uh, you know but he's around people that are constantly saying to him things like well now we're going to teach you about legal clearances <laughs> you know like she's like she's really putting some knowledge on him here you know. Yeah. Prepping him
0: for a career, you know, yes. but like, yeah, yeah I also, I, I'm going to try and say this uh, delicately uh, and re- as respectfully as I can, you know, I, I was a production assistant for a number of years when I came to New York to, to, to work in the film industry and, and, and I worked as a production assistant for a number of years and um, my, the, fil- one, the, the film resonated for me in a number of ways. One of those ways, which was very unique uh, to like pretty much anything I'd ever seen, was seeing uh, was seeing uh, something like that captured. To, to have some work like that actually like be documented. Yes. Um, and it, it's you know I mean for me to some degree you know like uh, you know I, I I I came from probably like a similar U.S. equivalent uh, you know um, to um, what Mathana had come from. I had not gone. Through, I I did not come from a war zone. I came from four years of a liberal arts college. Yes, the last and
1: the I, last the last war in Concord, Massachusetts, was in 1776. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. I recall. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, and and they'll let you know. Believe you me. Yes.
1: Uh, yeah. So,
0: so um, he uh, uh, what was going to say he. Um, there seems to be an expectation. He 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 gets dropped into the situation. There's just this expectation that you're just going to be good at this stuff because it is mindless. And it is like not glamorous work but and it is unclear on, as to what he was prepped for when he arrived but it doesn't it sort of doesn't matter because again the, the, this person is clearly um, clearly going through a lot um, you know that Davenport uh, shares uh, it distributes cameras to uh, Muthana's uh, friends and family and they're saying yes, well, right they're, they're,
1: they're his friends. Because they're his fellow film students at yeah. the college in Baghdad that's been destroyed by the u s air Force
0: yeah and and they're sending him stuff back saying, "Look, it's awful here there's no hope here, don't come back, you know whatever yes. you need to do you know he says, and, and and Davenport captures that a little bit where like she gives him space to open up about what had happened uh you know um during the f- initial wave and and he um he's, he's very blunt. He's, he's like, I'm not going to get into it. And as the film goes on, um, you know, he has a, he doesn't really have a falling out. He has a weird falling out with uh, Seraph, the producer. Um, very belittling um, couple of conversations that it, it's a cringe inducing film to watch. In, it's in, a, it's in, a, in a very a
1: awkward, it's a very awkward and very cringe cringe inducing film to watch. And the way that Muthana is treated by Liev Schreiber and Peter Seraf is just appalling. Because they are constantly congratulating themselves for helping this kid in a war-torn city, by you know, flying him to the Czech Republic to ask him to mix nuts and M and M's together and bring them coffee.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, it, it's just you know, you, you almost can't believe it. And when I saw it when it was new, it was it was appalling, but to see it now in 2021, um, it's just outrageous. And what they are the, so. Wh- what was the reception?
0: So when it came out well, I, I... you know
1: it you know came out and people said it was okay you know and mm-hmm. they just moved on because no films from the iraq war were really considered very much yeah. and you know yeah. peter sarif of course is is a very successful film producer still mm-hmm. and we all know who Leav schreiber is you know he's got a mm-hmm. tv show and he's doing great
0: yeah and, um, yeah
1: yeah the only people that are nice to uh, mutana in this movie i mean elijah wood is kind of nice to him although yeah. he's skeptical and then after uh, the everything is illuminated wraps, he stays on in Prague and he gets a job on um, a movie called Doom that stars mm-hmm. The Rock, and um, I can't think of her name now. Rosamund Pike.
0: Oh, she okay? And, uh,
1: yeah, and Doug, Doug Jones, who does you know creature acting like in um, The Shape of Water. Yeah, and and The Rock and Doug Jones are very very nice and understanding to Muthana. And in fact, The Rock donates you know, about $13,000 to him. So it's a great scene, to, yeah. He can go to film school in London. And of course, you know, The Rock makes a big show about what a generous generous guy he is, you know. Mm-hmm. The Rock is very performative in his generosity, uh, Dwayne Johnson is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact is he still actually helps uh, Muthana in a material way. Yeah. And, you know, no no one else really does. And, you know, Doug Jones is very nice to him. And working on Doom, which is some Dumb action movie that I actually I've never seen it. Uh, and so yeah,
0: I watched it in a dorm room. We got uh, an hour into it and we realized nothing has happened in this film. It's just people <laughs> running through like like sci-fi hallways fl- with flashlights, like trying to follow. There's like zero action the whole film. Anyway.
1: Well, they needed to go to Prague to shoot that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, the the way that Liev Schreiber and Peter Saraf act towards Muthana is so different than how the people on this. Ostensibly crappier film treat him, yeah. And it's it's really um, it's really stark. That is also stark. To use the word stark again, mm-hmm. and you know th- her film is really um, it's a real it's a really an amazing document of American uh you know liberalism, at its kind of most smarmy.
0: Smarmy, yeah, that's exactly. Yes. It. Um, do you so so Davenport does some interesting stuff as as a documentarian, and clearly she's she's clearly making this up as she goes along uh she she's not in she doesn't make herself a presence in the film on the front end and then she's she makes the decision to to stay with the subject she starts to she starts to appear more in the film and the subject and the documentarian start to antagonize each other a lot more well that's right yeah and 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 i I can't think of anything else i'd seen that like kind of did that Um, I got I walked away from it with the feeling that that uh, Davenport was doing a very brave thing of showing uh, herself not being very doing some stuff that is not very good, or being complicit <laughs> in some in some really evil shit and and um, she's not explicit about that. But, you know, I, that's what I inferred. Um, yes. I know, you, you know, you I, I've, uh, I've tried to share this film uh, widely to people I, I try to talk about it whenever I can. Um, because it reverberates with me and I know uh, often what I, people tell me is oh that's kind of depressing that guy's kind of a jerk you know like what, what do you expect but um well yeah
1: well first of all I don't think that he's a jerk yeah I think I think he's in a very difficult situation where he's being asked to thank people constantly for being paternalistic to him including yeah. including her the filmmaker and also he doesn't have any money which he needs and you know he is a he is a little bit uh, whiny and lazy, but he's like, yeah. you know I don't know I don't know how old he is. He's nineteen or twenty one or yeah, something. yeah, he's a
0: college student. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and um, you know I'm not sympathetic to the attitudes that the people in the film have have toward him. Yeah. You know, there's there's one scene where the people on the shoot, uh, the Everything is Illuminated shoot, there's one scene where they explain to him how important Entertainment Weekly is. Oh yeah. Right? And so once you've seen people explaining to a, a, an Iraqi war refugee how mm-hmm. important Entertainment Weekly is, it's impossible to have sympathy for their point of view anymore.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of a terrifying thing that, uh, you know, uh, my second viewing of the film, I, I don't think reverberated as much the first time, was uh, Davenport is trying to get him into the States at the end, and she gets, and she's like, uh, eventually she... Because he decides that he doesn't want to be a director for a little while, he says maybe he wants to be an actor. And she, it's a reel of his. She gets, she makes a reel for him and she takes it to like these uh, casting agencies, and they they just have this like vision of just like, um, oh yeah, we could definitely get that work that guy work tomorrow. Like he could you know, and you you just uh, infer that like he's going to be on um, you know uh, Law and Order as like some you know yeah he's going to be on uh, Twenty Four yeah twenty yeah exactly.
1: So,
0: yeah, um, it's a great film, but, uh, yeah. But, you know, to, not to, you know,
1: spoil, you know I mean, her, her attempt to get him to uh, New York City so that he can go to film school in New York is somewhat, you know, the people at the school are very interested in him. Both the filmmaking people and the acting people are very interested in him after they see his reel. But, you know, she ultimately is not able to get him to New York and uh, he's kind of stranded in Europe you know, at the end of the film. And, and she, she essentially abandons him. So her, her point is that this is like the war in Iraq in, yeah. in some ways. But, yeah, you know, th- there's the no
0: exit strategy.
1: Right. She, and she hits this point kind of a little too hard at the end. Um, and it kind of lets everybody, it lets all the Americans off the hook in a way.
0: You th- why why um, do you say that?
1: Because, because she portrays Mutana as, uh, you know, as someone who couldn't get it together enough to to you know make this opportunity work for him and we're supposed to think that he's a fuck up Mm. you know which you know i guess he is a little bit but i'm sure there's lots of people who are that age that work on movie sets and they they're not really into like bringing coffee to people yeah you know but they're not iraqi refugees
0: yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, I, I, I didn't feel that way. I mean, I I, I think it's, I, I actually think it's, a, well, I, I feel like it, I don't think, I think she stuck the landing pretty well, because I think it seemed like footage that she had shot that she had sat with for a while. And ultimately, yeah, like I said, she was trying to, like, create these parallels to her situation with the U.S. and Iraq. And the problem is, like, um, the problem is that this guy's got this, all this shit going on in his head, and he's, um, you know he can't function in this. You know. Well, world.
1: you know her her film is thoughtful and very mm-hmm. well done and fascinating from start. You know, and it's ninety minutes. It's really great. But you know he he's you know he's a human being with his yeah. own thoughts and ideas and character and personality. He he is not respected for that by the film really. Mm-hmm. He he is portrayed as a liar. Yeah you know, because he, you know, he keeps changing his mind about stuff because he's confused. And, uh, you know, he is a little bit shifty, but, you know, I mean, he's in a very odd situation. He'd never been out of uh, Iraq his whole life. Yeah. And, you know, there's a certain level of, there's a certain lack of something on the part of the, of the Americans, you know, and it's not... It's not. I. I don't. I, I hesitate to call it empathy, but um, because it's not even at that level. You know, there's a certain lack of concern for his his future. Yeah. You know.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. They kind of at some point that this is, like it's a mark, There's nothing that you can do because he, he right. seems like a walking liability. Yeah. Let's uh, move over to Melancholia. Sure. I. Uh, I had, um, so you, you had written about this and remember me on this computer. I have, if you don't mind, I have like a little abridged quote from okay. from that, if, if I can. Um, you write um, uh, from the introduction to the book, I focus on these, you're, you're referring to um, The Turin Horse, Hard to Be a God, and um, the film Melancholia. You say, I focus on these difficult, depressing films without resort to any okay. knee-jerk optimism I don't feel compelled to tell you that I also love Edgar Wright movies to show that I luxurate in mediocrity. I don't love movies like that. I don't do that and it doesn't matter, dot, dot, dot. They are the antidote that restores life by nullifying entertainment. Um, This kind of goes to like what we were talking about at the top of the show a little bit. Um, Yes. That that really resonated with me. That really caught my attention when I I, I picked up the book. Um,
1: Oh, good. Well, that's a, that's a section from the introduction to the book, which is an essay I wrote called Remember Me on This Computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wanted to talk about exactly what you brought up at the beginning of uh, the podcast today, yeah. which is that, you know, there's, there's, there are different, there are different kinds of films for different reasons, and it's not that, you know, one kind is more entertaining than the other and that we should, we should interrogate even the concept of entertainment, and that films like um, Bela Tar's The Turin Horse, which is a, per- perhaps the most depressing film ever made in, in, in a way, and *Hard uh, to Be a God by Alexei German, uh, a Russian film, the Tar film is Hungarian, um, are films that, that plunge the viewer into bleak experiences that are also, you know, kind of hopeless and strange, and you know, they don't conform to Hollywood notions of what a movie is. So in Operation Filmmaker, there's a scene where Mutana is in a film class in London, and the uh, professor is talking about the hero's journey. You know, this very kind of Joseph Campbell, Star Wars concept of what a film is supposed to be uh, in order to be satisfying to an audience, Not, not necessarily cathartic, and these, these films, this list of films, uh, The Turn Horse and a Hard to Be God and Melancholia by Lars von Trier, which is the third film you picked to talk about, mm-hmm. are films that kind of obliterate that whole notion of making a film, writing a screenplay, learning how to do that in a, you know, in an institutional setting.
0: Um, I'm, I, I always want to be a von Trier agnostic. I think he's interesting. I don't, when he has not something new, I tend not to jump onto it. And so this was another one that I should say, I, I, you know, I, I got interested in watching this finally because, uh, you had written about it. Um, and, um, uh, it was, uh, again, it's another film, that I don't think necessarily needs an introduction, um, except to say that it's a, it's a blatant ripoff of Don McKellar's last night, uh. I, I was hoping you would get that one. Um, so, so, so yeah, um, Mary Jane Watson's watching the end of the world. Uh, it opens with the first half um, that, uh, you know, is, it, it, it seems to exist as a contrast to the second half, right? I mean, I, I, I realized, I watched it a month ago, I, I have not put that much thought into the first half of the film. Um, well,
1: you know, Melancholia by L- Lars von Trier's film from 2011. Um, is a film about the the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's a film about a giant asteroid, you know, heading towards the planet slowly that can't be stopped and yeah. is going to is going to destroy all is going to destroy not just you know all life on Earth, but the planet itself.
0: Yeah. It's, no Ben it's, Affleck, no Bruce Willis coming in. Yeah. It's just right. it's coming.
1: The f- the film is the opposite of of something like Interstellar.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the anti-interstellar. And it does. It starts with a sequence that's kind of dreamlike while we hear a selection from Tristan and Isolde by Wagner playing in which we see the destruction of the planet. And we see the kind of dreams that Kirsten Dunst is having about her life as her wedding approaches. And then, then it goes into the actual night of the wedding in which she and her groom, who's played by Alexander Skarsgård, like the most handsome couple, the most yeah. beautiful couple, mm-hmm. are, are going to this castle. It's supposed to be in America, but of course it was shot in Denmark because it's a Lars von Trier film. Mm-hmm. And they're in a white stretch limousine, and they're trying to get up to the castle, but they can't get there because the limousine is too big to negotiate the roads and navigate the, uh, the curves and turns in the road. And so it, so it starts from a point after the dreams, and the when we see the end, which is the destruction of the planet. We see that first. Before it happens, it starts from a point of view of quagmire, and you know they have to they have to take over from the limo driver. They have to figure out how to get this car up the hill, and so they're two hours late for their their wedding. And when they get there, everyone is very annoyed and very Mm -hmm. upset with them. And they try to they try to put on a happy face because they're upper class, you know, wealthy bourgeoises. And, you know, in that segment of the film, you really realize that if you're going to get married, you should not hire Yudo Kier as your wedding planner. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, then we meet both sets of their parents and their other relatives. The parents are horrible, mean people. Her parents are played by um, John, Hurt John,
0: and, um,
1: John Hurt and Charlotte Rampling, who are divorced yeah. in, in the film. And uh, his parents, his father is um, Stalin Stel- Skarsgård. Yeah. Who's, uh, who's also Dunst's employer. She works in advertising and marketing at a, at a, at a big firm. Yeah. And he, he's very happy about the wedding because she's his star employee. You know, and the, the, the most important part of all this, however, is that she is, suffers from very serious chronic depression. And, you know, as things go wrong, her depressive state gets worse. Uh, so things at the wedding don't, don't go well and it's a very again cringy awkward long sequence that takes up about an hour of the film
0: yeah and it's it, it's it's funny because i was thinking uh it i was trying to put it in a context uh and it's funny how i think it coming uh coming out of like the the aughts and the 90s i think that there was there was a bit of that pressure to be happy um, sort of uh, thing that it's playing with in a way that is not American Beauty. It's it's uh, it feels it, it, there, there's more verisimilitude to what actual like chronic depression probably oh, yeah. comes out I mean, as. You know, I I think
1: it's a highly original film. I don't I don't compare yeah. it to any other films about the end of the planet. No, it's, it, it's nothing like American. It's nothing like American Beauty. It's kind of the opposite of American Beauty. Yeah, um, which is to me like a tawdry phony film, you know, yeah. that, I, that I don't like at all. Time
0: has not been kind to that at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a film about shame. American Beauty is a film about shame, really.
0: Yeah.
1: Which, which a lot of films from that, a lot of American films from that period were about shame. Melancholia mm-hmm. is not a film about shame. It's a film about depression. Um, and it's a film about the end of the world too. And it's a film about what happens to this, this upper class family uh, at, the, at the end of the world. Because the second half of the film is about uh, the Dunst character's sister played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's married to Kiefer Sutherland. And they have a child and they have horses on their property and they, they actually run the place where the wedding was to take place. And it's about how the rationality and reasonableness of someone like the Kiefer Sutherland character crumbles in the face of this catastrophic uh, event that can't be averted. And Kiefer Sutherland is very good in this movie. It's probably the best performance he's given in a film, I think. Um,
0: Stand by so, me, but yeah. Okay.
1: But yeah, but, okay. <laughs> but yeah I, I mean, I, like I said, I think films like this, I think this film looks stranger every year.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and especially as we move into this kind of streaming era of cinema uh, which in, entails a huge amount of content production, uh, mo- most of which is just feel-good, happy-talk style entertainment. You know, the existence of a film like this, you know, becomes more and more significant to me because it's a serious film about the end of the world with you know great acting in it. That's that takes its time, and and tells its story in a very unconventional way that's really nothing like television at all. You know. it does
0: this it does this terrifying thing where you get to like 30 minutes before it ends uh, and there's just like um, all there's left to do is um, figure out how you're going to resign yourself and and right. and, and how you're going to keep time uh, at the end um, and uh, it's just yeah it's just so unmoored um, and it's, it's centered like uh, that that, um, that there is uh, the character Leo, the the, the child there, um, really just yes. like gives everything a, a weight to it because it's uh, you know I think you see a lot of there are, there there are films. This isn't the only film about the end of the world, but this I think this is the first one that I come, that I can think of where you know it it goes it goes right for the heart of it, which is that like you know what's terrifying is that there's no is that there's no future uh and and there's nothing to see past what is about to happen um, well
1: you know it's a film that it's a film that you know people talk about this you know mark fisher i guess it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it <laughs> is to that, that it is to imagine any kind of change in the system that we live under mm-hmm. uh you know that's 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 this explicit subject of this film almost and something that's also you know impressive about it is how negative the Kirsten Dunst character is, you know, she, she's a deeply unhappy person, and nothing in the film tempers that at all. In fact, when her sister, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character, tries to envision a way that they can spend their last moments, which is, you know, sitting on their beautiful terrace, you know, drinking champagne and listening to Beethoven,
0: right? Which is um, what I would think to do. That that would be we, right. fair, fair. That would be, that would have been. That, I was like, that's how I always think I would do it.
1: Right. The Dunst character, who's named Justine her, her uh, reaction to that is, is violent and savage. And she just says, you know what I think of your plan? It's a piece of shit, yeah. you know? She just totally rejects this kind of mollifying, um, you know, moment that they're supposed to have together as a family as irrelevant to everything. And instead she does something, you know, she does something more or- original. Yeah, um, something more, something
0: more more thoughtful to to Leo, yes. which which like um, you know, I certainly, you know, I, I found very moving. Like, uh,
1: well, you know, her, her depression, her depression makes her the strongest person at the yeah. end of the film. You know, so she's able to do something that's more meaningful and um, more, um, it changes the film. You know, by by the end of the film, it changes the film. What she does,
0: yeah,
1: I think. I don't I'm not sure what to say more about it. You know, no. there's the, the, the great the, the thing that's something that's really great about uh, melancholy is the way it forces us to confront uh, reality and not try to think about, you know, exoplanets or whatever they're called, like an interstellar. And, you know, sure. what, what, what I'm not sure what the word is, terraforming or whatever. Yeah,
0: terraforming. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it, this film says there's a line in the film. Life is only on Earth. Life is only on Earth, and not for yeah. long.
0: It knows. It knows what we're doing. Yeah. It knows. It yeah. knows where we are mentally while we're watching it as yes. film goers.
1: Right. So, so instead of giving ourselves over to these absurd fantasies with, you know, Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, mm-hmm. uh, getting on some giant spaceship and saving humanity, it 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 asks the viewers to contemplate the, the you know the the facts on the ground of our existences, you know, in time right now. And uh, it's not trying to be preachy. It's not an, it's not an environmental, you know, film about no. saving the planet at all.
0: There's no agenda um, outside of just, like, facing something, just facing the reality of, like, nothingness.
1: Of total extinction, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, in this way, I think it's, you know, it's valuable, not just as a work of cinema, but as a kind of a reality check.
0: Yeah. Well, no. I think that's a really good segue, if I can, to um, talking about uh, the film Terminator 2, which huh. A.S. Hamra, uh, esteemed film critic, published author, um, uh, you had said that uh, you had not seen this whole film in its entirety, this uh, <laughs> big budget, early 90s uh, action um, a staple, I would call it. Yes, um, I'd only
1: seen the film in segments. I'd only seen the film in segments. I think I'd seen the whole film, but never straight through.
0: Okay. So you sat down with it or?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's the 30th anniversary of this film. So it's interesting to talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) Because it came out in 1991, which, you know, a lot lot of good movies came out in 1991. 1991 is the Silence of the Lambs year. And it's the year that uh, A Brighter Summer Day came out, the uh, Edward Yang film is that
0: uh mo better blues or is that 1990?
1: no the jungle fever came out in 1991 right okay um and um lovers on the bridge came out that year the leos corrects film Mm -hmm. and you know there was a lot of good things coming out that year uh and terminator 2 judgment day was you know a film that came out that year also (laughs) um (laughs) but you know so Terminator 2 Judgment Day is interesting in, in, in talking about melancholia because it's a film yeah. about saving. It's a film about how the future mm-hmm. is concerned with saving humanity in the present. Yeah. Right? And it believes in the future. You know, it, it's, it's Terminator 2, even though it's a film from the 90s, it's more like an 80s film in that way because it, it has a belief in history. And, and, and it's, its belief is that people in the future will care about us now.
0: Yeah, that that the present is important.
1: That the present is important and in fact, you know, Schwarzenegger has to yell at the kid, you're important. You know, he's uh, flattering this kid. I mean, the film is flattering kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, you know, it, and for Gen X there were no films like that where, you know, the kid was important and flattered that way. So, you know, I think that was part of its success. Sure. But um but all those things make it unlike a film like Melancholia or any other films now that don't that kind of lie about the future or don't really care about the future, mm-hmm. you know? You know, watching it watching it straight through like this. One, well, one thing I was uh, struck by right away is how when, when Arnold shows up, you know, in the present and he has to, you know, find clothes to wear, he's fortunate enough that there's a punk rock <laughs> biker bar nearby in which he can go in and take the clothes of one of the tough guys there and take the guy's motorcycle. So if it happened today, he would, like, probably end up next to a TGI Fridays. <laughs> and he'd have to go in. Oh, my God, yeah, that's great. the uniform of, of somebody who works at TGI Fridays or someplace like that, and then walk around in the rest of the film with, like, a TGI Fridays uniform on.
0: He'd be in, he yeah, the most badass thing you can imagine is he'd go into a Walmart and get, like, a, a Punisher t-shirt with, like, one tooth that's blue, well, uh, <laughs> you know, thank
1: God he's not in some kind of fascist outfit, you know, like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the fascist outfit is worn by the T, uh, 1000 T-1000 yeah. Terminator, who yeah. dresses like a cop throughout most of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there's it's, there's a clear dichotomy set up between the police and yeah, good like people. Yeah, like an outlaw. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it... It's a film, obviously, it's a film that I've been living with uh, for a while now. It's a film that I've been thinking about a lot. And I, I always, you know, it's, it's been rich to be going back to it. Um, I, I think it is a film that, like, you know, you use the term optimism, which is something that, like, uh, I've often attributed to it. It plays footsie with the apocalypse. It, uh, it has a very well, yeah. striking, literally striking sequence uh, in the middle. Um, it, people are listening to this. They, they, they know what I'm talking about. Um, and yet, and yet it doesn't, you know, um, the ending, uh, tends to like go for like a very like old yeller, you know, but otherwise very positive ending. Like it, it well, I mean, I me like there's a future. Yeah.
1: Well, are you saying that Arnold's character is like old yeller? He's like the dog in old yeller?
0: He has to be put down at the end. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's true. I guess the, the destruction of the planet and everyone dying in fire scene in Terminator 2 is you know, the highlight of the film in some ways. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's good that it's in the middle of the film like that. Uh, I, I, um, there's a guy towards the end of the film who's driving a helicopter. Mm -hmm. He's flying a helicopter and he has to jump out of the helicopter when it's in midair because, you know, of what's going on in the film. And he's a minor character with only one line. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, when watching it this time, I wondered what happened to that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Does he live or die? you know what's his story you know I'd like to see the whole film done from just his point of view
0: oh sure there's tons of characters that uh, are just like there to like stop and try and be kind of helpful actually, I actually have a friend who on another episode uh she had the observation that like I think it's almost like uh, Cameron's James Cameron's latent Canadian-ness that like um, uh, like there's all this like shit that blows up and then like one guy comes up and goes are you okay like,
1: <laughs> yeah right <laughs>
0: very polite and helpful like
1: that well you know the films the films you know this is a science fiction film and i do think it has more in common with certain 80s films Mm -hmm. than you know more 21st century films in that it's you know it it has a view of the future that's frightening and corporate and bad for people and oh yeah you know in inhuman and digital and all the system can
0: grind you down Yeah,
1: yeah but it, it, it still has a faith in humanity that um you know that is, you know, really the kind of most important part of the film. But that that kind of thing was eliminated from film slowly over time in the last thirty years. Yeah, by the you time know? you
0: get to by the time you get to Iron Man, there's a relationship well, to technology uh, right. that, that's I, I, stark contrast. It,
1: exactly, and it's a much. I was you know it's a much. I was thinking about Iron Man. Unfortunately, when I watched it, uh, it's a much better film than Iron Man. Um, and part of the reason it's better is because you know Arnold is not a human being you know, he's essentially, he's a, you know, he's a robot. Mm-hmm. And we're not expected to feel towards him the way we're supposed to feel towards Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark, which he's like a cool guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's really smart. He's so, you know, he's just, he's just really, he's got a lot of swagger. Mm-hmm. And, Fashionably you know, haunted. Him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're, none of that is in this. So, yeah. you know, it's better because- I mean, He's, I, he's I, just I write, a
0: slate. A blank yeah, slate, write, so,
1: yeah. yes exactly and he doesn't really talk much and i and i wrote about iron man in the iraq war movies piece jessica beale's hand is an iraq mm-hmm. war movie which is what it is as you recall it yeah. takes place in you know afghanistan i think it is partially is it afghanistan or iraq
0: I, I think it was afghanistan
1: yeah but you know there's something connects um terminator 2 judgment day to the grapes of wrath to me
0: yes
1: and it's the when the, you know the terminator is saying i'll be back
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The Terminator saying I'll be back is the opposite of the speech in The Grapes of Wrath at the end that Henry Fonda has, where he says, you know, I, I mean, he, he doesn't say I'll be back. He doesn't come back. He says, I'll be around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. And when he, when he, when he has that speech in The Grapes of Wrath, he's talking about the working class and he's talking about, you know, the poor. And you know, I mean, that's just the opposite of, uh, of of a robot from the future, you know, but but the, the the distinction between those two lines is the history of American cinema, the history of Hollywood cinema in a nutshell. From from this kind of, you know, concern with, um, you know, the common man, to you know, let's just make a film about robots killing everybody.
0: Yeah, it's a sequel, and uh, maybe we'll make another one. Maybe it's yeah. Right. Do you have? a lot of esteem for Cameron as a storyteller? No, uh, yeah.
1: no, not really. No. He's he's no. got a really
0: funny mythos. I was thinking about this the other day. He's sort of he is sort of like um the the mythos when we think of him is somewhere between Spielberg and Wells where it's like he's this really difficult genius who um no one listened to him and then he made movies multiple times that like made more money than any other movie.
1: Yeah, and I don't I'm not a Cameron fan. I don't I've never really, mm-hmm. you know, Terminator and uh terminator 2 are kind of enjoyable films but you know i'm not a fan uh, of his yeah you know i I mean i don't think it's i i I don't think that's the direction that the cinema should have gone in and um it certainly was a a weird
0: harbinger the the first film with like cgi you know yeah kind of like controlling imagination it's funny that you you say that's a film that believes in the future uh Because he he was obviously, he's obviously a technocrat in- in, in, in. Yes,
1: but he's a a technocrat, but in that film, you know, that the the technocratic angle is not as, is not prominent. Yeah. So perhaps he's lying in that movie, (laughs) Uh, you know?
0: Yeah, who knows?
1: Yeah, and you know, his, his films since then are just not interesting to me at all, really. Mm -hmm. um you know but like i said they're the exact opposite of the grapes of wrath you know there's something about um the grapes of wrath that i discovered when i was you know rewatching it this time Mm -hmm. and i happened to read um otis ferguson's review of it from when it came out and who was
0: uh, was ferguson
1: otis ferguson he was a film critic in the 30s who died in world war ii he's one of the he's really the first great american film critic but he died young because he was in the Merchant Marine during World War Two. Uh, he reviewed The Grapes of Wrath, you know, the, the week it came out in New York City. And um, he he used the phrase uh, ribbon of highway in his review.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I believe that's where Woody Guthrie got that phrase from a film review. So in this land is your land.
0: The ribbon of highway. Know, yeah.
1: He sings about the ribbon of highway and it's known that he had seen Grapes of Wrath when it came out, and people know the date that he wrote that song, and I looked it up and it was written um, a week after Otis Ferguson's review appeared in The New Republic. So I suspect that Woody Guthrie got the phrase Ribbon of Highway from a film critic.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. See, see, people people bash you guys all the time, but uh, there you go, like compression right. music. <laughs>
1: American culture yeah you know what While I'm on the phone with you I want to just check check something okay sure so you you can edit this part too
0: sure
1: but you know I mean I'm almost so I mean I want to I want to go on record as being the first person to discover that Woody Guthrie was influenced by an Otis Ferguson film review of the grapes of wrath and writing this land is your land
0: yeah but you know we can take we should take this to the Woody Guthrie Museum I follow them on Instagram
1: so let let me i just pulled the otis ferguson book off the shelf and um the graves of wrath review appeared in the new republic on 12 february 1940 It wasn't the autumn of 1940 it was the late Ah. winter and um yeah and then then guthrie wrote the song a week later and you know ferguson had written the piece right after seeing the movie when it premiered in new york so there's a you know there's a direct line there between John Ford and uh between Steinbeck and Ford and Otis Ferguson and Woody Guthrie and and I'm not sure I don't think the phrase ribbon of highway appears in the novel but I didn't do a search for that
0: so but that would be I mean that would be a really interesting find you I know Guthrie uh he was certainly a figure that like kind of like old stuff from everywhere. So it's fine to think of someone who's sitting there and and reading a a, a film review. It's fine to think of people as even like sitting there and like thinking of film reviews and having film reviews have like flourishes in in its language that like uh, someone like Guthrie would like absorb and like, you know, kind of put into like such a well-regarded piece of music.
1: Right. Well, you know, this land is your land is kind of the unofficial, you know, uh, you know national anthem it's the counter national anthem sure. to the Star singing banner and that's why you know jennifer lopez sang it at the inauguration
0: <laughs> it's 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 a funny you know i, I was born in A2. it's uh, it's a funny generation we we're having i don't think we've had um our i don't think there's any generation that's quite had um its media on such a feedback loop um i don't have the relationship to howdy duty which is something my dad would have watched that um, my um, son has to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for instance. Um, It's, and I think this kind of gets to what we're talking about imagination. Um, Damn, what was his name, Um, capitalist realism. Um, Mark Fisher. Yeah, what we were saying about Mark Fisher, and the concept of like trying to, you know, imagine, um, any sort of like world or any sort of culture besides uh, what we kind of have in front of us. Um, it's always been one way and it always will be that way. Right. I, uh, I grew up with Marvel Comics is a, a big thing for me. And, and obviously it's, it's been weird seeing them go from this thing that like, um, you know, kind of like a couple of geeky guys watching now, it's like, it's the monoculture. And one thing that I've been thinking about is how much uh, no one ages in them much uh the oh, right. same stasis and uh you know i did an episode on Spider-Man recently and, and it's this weird thing where like this stuff needs to just constantly be like stopping and starting again like you know uh
1: well you know those films are about how everyone is replaceable so, <laughs> yeah. you know, so someone plays spider-man until the next guy plays spider-man yeah and then the guy after that plays spider-man and then the guy after that plays spider-man
0: it's that, so, so, almost like sometimes. James Bond. Like uh, that's yes, the that's the like only James thing. <laughs> so, well, James you know, Bond. there's this a badass like idea. Of, anyway,
1: yeah. Right, and you know the films we were talking about are are not about that, mm-hmm. and you know even Terminator Two is not about that because there's a new model Terminator that's better yeah. than the old one. You know, it's not it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing that that happens. But it's on and, a
0: trajectory.
1: Right, and in mm-hmm. you know the Graves of Wrath is about you know the individual you know the value of individual lives don't seem seem to people you know uh from the outside uh, important in some ways and melancholy of course is about the end of the world but operation filmmaker is about how mutana should just be able to be fitted into the slot that he's asked to yeah. be in yeah in making and making an american film you know and um You know, I, I too, when I was a child, I learned to read by reading Marvel comics. Mm -hmm. Stan Lee taught me to read, Mm -hmm. but, but as an adult, I don't have an affection for them beyond that fact of my life. You know, it doesn't make me want to see a movie Mm -hmm. at all. And uh, I think it's ridiculous to assume that about me or anyone, which is the whole business strategy of those films. I once wrote a piece for um, a website I used to write for in the late nineties and early two thousands called suck.com about about the seriality of James Bond films and how people are replaced in them in which I compared the films to Michael Apted's Up films because he had directed a new James Bond film that year oh, which right. which is the world is not enough so and then you know one of the Up films was out at the same time as the new James Bond film and they had the same director and I don't like either of those films <laughs> uh, either of those film series and the yeah. piece the piece was called 007 Up and uh you know it was about how things have a natural lifespan that is are, really aren't being honored by that that kind of cinema you mm-hmm. know i mean what is the point of just making these james bond films over and over and over again i guess because they make you know an enormous amount of money and whoever plays james bond becomes like the richest actor in the world for a while right. whereas the up the up films are the opposite of that they're about the slow deterioration into meaninglessness almost of people's lives but they present the, the, these things as, as truly uh, important and as something amazing to see, but I don't think that is what is actually on the screen in those films, you know? And it's interesting to me that the same person was making both James Bond movies and the Up films at the same time.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. And I looked up, you know, be, because you can do things quickly now, and, and I'm in, I, I moved to in front of my computer, and I did a I did a search on the you know uh, text of uh, the Grapes of Wrath, the Steinbeck okay. novel. And yeah. according to the according to the return, the phrase "ribbon of highway" does not appear in the novel.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna actually like uh, ping uh, the Woody Guthrie Museum about this, and so maybe uh, maybe we can get uh, this recognized. I'm, we're going we're gonna investigate this together, Scott.
1: Okay, great.
0: Um, before we go. Um, the book is The Earth Dice Streaming. And um, uh, Scott, can you tell us where we could find that?
1: Uh, yeah, my book is available uh, directly from N Plus One, who published it, N Plus One Books, their books division. You can go to their website and buy it, and that's the best way to get it. It's also available as an ebook, And, you know, many local uh, independent bookstores all over the country and all over the world carry it. And of course, you can buy it from that uh website that sells books and uh you know yeah whatever uh, it's screen, streams movies that they produce and tv shows too
0: um hey uh uh thank you so much for your time uh it's been great uh talking to you uh and yeah hasta
1: la vista uh, and, uh... uh yeah, <laughs> <la> vista. Uh, <laughs> yeah and uh thank you very much for having me on it was a great pleasure to talk to you about movies.